Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 260 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, thank you, listeners. I just want to start by saying thank you for sharing. Thank you for engaging. Thank you for letting us know what this show means to you. It means a lot to us, too. And guess what? We just uh, just passed 8 million downloads. We have a big celebration coming up at 10 million, so hang on for that. Uh, But 8 million downloads later, just thank you guys so much. You are incredible. You make this so worth doing. And all of us who work on the show, uh, and there's quite a few in the background, just just want to thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, Today, we are talking about slowing down to celebrate and to rest. And why is it so many of us who are driven ruin our souls? And this is very close to my heart because I burned out, as some of you know, 13 years ago. So I'm thrilled to have Ruth Haley Barton on the show today. She is an author and has written just some really powerful stuff on how to make time for rest. So I think this will be good. Also, uh, on the other side of burnout, I figured out a brand new way to live. And uh, if you've never checked out The High Impact Leader and you would like to get some of your life and leadership back, head on over and check that out now at thehighimpactleader.com. So here's what I think will happen. Number one, you will gain somewhere between three productive hours a week to three productive hours every day back. Now, if you do that, like let's say it works out for you, you take the High Impact Leader course and you end up with three hours a week back. Do you know what that boils down to? Over a month of reclaimed time. That's right. So it could be a month of vacation. It could be a month to work on a book. It could be a month to launch your podcast. It could be a month to read your kids' stories at night and tuck them into bed. It could be a month to take up a hobby. It could be a month to uh, work on something at work, like some new project, or you split it however you want. And for some people, it'll be over a thousand hours in the course of a year, which is insane. I mean, if you think about that, three hours a day, what would you do if you got three hours a day back? And we've been able to help a couple thousand leaders through the High Impact Leader and they see tremendous results. There's also a 30-day money-back guarantee. So head on over if you're curious about how to get your life and leadership back and sort of reclaim control of your agenda, head on over to thehighimpactleader.com where we've got everything ready for you. Also want to ask you about your team. Like, how's your team going? And some of you, let's be really honest, you don't have a team. And you're thinking, I can't afford one. You're a solopreneur, you're a solo pastor, you're a startup. And you're like, I don't, I don't have money for staff. And some of you, you've got staff, but you haven't got enough staff or you haven't got the right staff. How do you solve all that? Well, I'll tell you the way I've solved it. I turned to Belay. Belay is a virtual staffing solution that I've used now for a couple of years and they are some of the people that work in the background of this show and also of my blog and writing and speaking and some of the other things I do. And I got to tell you, I love them. And they are my go-to solution for staffing. So you can head on over to belaysolutions.com forward slash carry, and they will present you highly qualified candidates. Not like, you know, hey, we hope this works out, but highly, highly qualified candidates. And you can get started quickly 
and you can get started affordably for as little as 10 hours a week. Because some of you, you know, when you hire someone, they relocate. It's like, what if it doesn't work out? Or what if I don't need this many hours? Uh, all that stuff is handled for you by Belay because you can start at 10 hours a week, 15, 20, uh, just little increments here and there. And you can find the staffing solution that's right for you with highly qualified candidates. So head on over to belaysolutions.com forward slash carry, C-A-R-E-Y, where you can learn more. Well, without further ado, let's jump into my conversation with Ruth Haley Barton. She is an author of multiple books. She is the founder and the CEO of the Transforming Center, which is a ministry dedicated to really strengthening the souls of Christian leaders, whether that's in the marketplace or in ministry. Uh, she's also a spiritual director, and she's got a lot to say about taking care of you. So here's my conversation with Ruth Haley Barton. Well, Ruth, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Yeah, we haven't really met before, but I was uh, reading your most recent book and kind of fascinated and convicted and taken in and owned and all of that. And um, something is going on in our culture today with hurry and speed. And you've got a number of writings, not just your latest book, that really encourage a very different view. Talk to us about that and how you got interested in Sabbath and rhythm and rest and retreat, all these things that none of us know anything about anymore. <laughs> well, you know, people, when people ask that question, the answer is always the same. And that is because I needed it so badly. You know, I got into this because I was dying, you know, um, and I had been shaped like all of us have been in a very high performance culture where drivenness and activism are the way we do life. And there's very little pacing. It's just all out all the time, seven days a week. And none of us are built to sustain that. God did not create us to sustain that. And so um, these writings definitely come out of my own need and my own wrestling with pace of life and lifestyle and my own drivenness and leadership and uh, really grappling with God about my own calling and my own way of life. So all of these works really come out of my own wrestling, really. So paint us a picture of the Ruth who needed this message very badly. Like how long ago was that? What were you doing? Oh, yes. um, well, it's not pretty. So are you ready? <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready. Yeah. Let's go. All right. Well, in my early 30s, I'm a pastor's kid. And in my yeah. early 30s, I had already, I'd already been in ministry for 10 years because I started, you know, right out of college, if not while I was in college. And I had three kids by 30 and was serving on staff at a church that I loved. And yet I was noticing that there was a performance-oriented drivenness that I wouldn't have known how to name at the time, but I wasn't right. living well and I knew it. Um, the people that I loved didn't feel like they were getting the best from me. I wasn't living well in my body. Um, I wasn't health, particularly healthy, um, even though I knew it would be better for me to take some breaks and to stop. I, I was, I couldn't, I, there was a compulsion to it that was really real and frightening to feel when your yeah. busyness is compulsive. That's really frightening. Um, and then no space for the deeper questions of my life that were stirring. And so there would be emotions that I could acknowledge and sometimes manage, but I couldn't fully control them. So sometimes a burst of anger about some of the things that I had witnessed and seen in the church, because uh, children's uh, pastors see a lot. And that was your background, children's pastor? No, no, I'm, no, the children oh, of the pastor. Oh, the, the child of yeah. a pastor sees I'm, a lot. Yeah, gotcha, so, yeah. understood. Children of I was going to say, that's actually one of the most complicated jobs in the church, period, if yeah, you know that one. Right. Yeah. But no, it's it's being, you know, the child of a pastor, you see the seamy underbelly totally. of the church. You see bad yeah. stuff. I was raised in a very conservative environment, so women weren't treated particularly well either, so I had anger about yeah. that. 
Um, there was sadness too, but I had never really been taught how to deal with sadness very well, how to be with God with sadness. And so sometimes I'd be ambushed by sadness or tears, but I wouldn't know where it was coming from or what to do about it. So as a person who was already a rising little rising star, you know, my star was rising a little bit in ministry. It was unnerving to acknowledge these truths and realities about myself. And what was your ministry at the time? Like, what were you doing? I was uh, director of women's ministries at the time, but I, you know, I'd done other things too. Um, I'd served in the church in every way we can. Sure. Um, by the yeah. time, by the time I'd gotten there, I had, you know, worked in lots of different ways in the church. And because I'm a pastor's kid, it was the only, it was the only life I really knew. So yeah. um, it was the only vocational aspiration I had. And it was the only experience I had really had was my life experience in the church. So it was frightening to have to acknowledge that my life in the church was not contributing to health and wholeness, but it was really um, causing me to burn out. And I joke with people that I am a, an overachiever. And so by the time you're 30, if you burn out at 30, you're an overachiever, even in terms of your burnout, you know? <laughs> so I was, I was really concerned for myself and knew that the life that I was living wasn't sustainable and would not be sustainable for the long haul. Did you have people knocking at your door telling you that? Or was that a self, like, did you have to like hit the yeah. wall to figure that out? Or how yeah, did that work I, It was my own wall and it was inner. Um, yeah. You know, because I was already in ministry leadership. I was already on staff at a church. Questions that I had even about theology and practice. I didn't have any safe place to, to ask those questions and to journey with God with those questions. Because leaders, after all, in the church are supposed to be pretty certain about everything. You know, we're the answer people, not the question people, right? Yeah. Right. Um, and if your performance is being evaluated in your church as, as your job and as your work, where does a leader have to go to discuss their own questions that might um, be threatening to others around them and might cause others to question your capacity for leadership or your fitness for leadership? And so it, it, I felt very isolated as well. So, no, I, people weren't knocking on my door telling me, but I did have one friend, though, who knew of some of my struggles, and she was the one who recommended a spiritual director, which was a lifesaver at that point. I think encountering a spiritual director was the second most important thing next to my conversion experience, you know? Really? What did, what did that look like, like a spiritual director? A spiritual director is someone who's more well-versed in the ways of the soul than we typically are, someone who's been on the path for a while someone who's well-versed in many Christian disciplines so they can guide you into the disciplines that are the right for you at a, at a particular time. So my whole journey into solitude and silence, which I wrote about in the book, Invitation to Solitude and Silence, came from a spiritual director saying, Ruth, what you need is to sit still long enough for the sediment to settle and the water to become clear. And that was my invitation to solitude and silence. And it came through a spiritual director far outside the ministry settings that I was in. I mean, today, solitude and silence, we're talking about that um, quite effortlessly, but 20 years ago, I'm telling you, no one was talking about it within Protestant evangelical circles. And in fact, people were quite threatened by it. They thought you were becoming a Buddhist or that you were, um, embracing new age philosophy or something like that. So right, even that right. was not a safe thing to talk about in the settings where I was ministering. The, the spiritual direction relationship was my safe place. Yeah, Jesus must have been very busy in the wilderness for 40 days. I'm sure he was highly productive. Yeah, I do right? not know why it, is, why it is at times so threatening. I, well, I do. I have some ideas about that. So, go ahead. What, what are your yeah. ideas? Well, one idea is that in solitude and silence, we give up control. That that's one of the most profound mm. things that we do in solitude and silence is to give up control and to allow God to be the one who knows what we need and to take initiative with us. And I think for leader types in particular, anything that 
requires us to give up control feels highly threatening. We'd rather keep putting our lives together our own way, um, controlling what we do, controlling outcomes, thinking through everything and making our own strategic plans. That feels like we're more in control. Solitude and silence, you literally give up control and let God be the one who initiates with you. Wow. Yeah, that's that's profound. So this was you a decade or so into ministry. Right. Mm-hmm. Firm halt. And in the book, I really appreciated it. You kind of hooked me in because, you know, I think uh, t- to be fair as a, as a writer, and I'm not saying this in a critical way at all, but, you know, you look at invitation to retreat and you're like, well, that's not me. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't need time away. And like you're talking about Brad within a few mm-hmm. pages who yeah. is a pastor leading a growing church who feels mm-hmm. empty inside and disconnected at home. And then you're like, okay, well, I'm not in ministry. And Jeremy, yeah. a gifted entrepreneur who leads a fast growing company, but has all these, this dysfunction inside. And I'm like, oh, you just summarized my thirties. Yeah, this is not fair. This is not fair at all. And I mean, the majority of the listeners to this podcast can, can resonate with those examples. So you know, maybe things, and, and this is a challenge for people, you know, sometimes you're in a season where things are flat or down and to the left, mm-hmm. but when they're up and to the right, it's not always great. So talk to me, talk to the Brads and the Jeremys or the women who are exactly where you at and describe where you were at 20 years ago, describe their world. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, th- I think it really is very much about coming to a place of realizing that all of our doing and all of our success, and even if our star is rising a bit, that there can be an emptiness inside if we have become disconnected from the presence of God deep within. And the very relationship, the very love relationship that drew us into ministry or into our work, that passion can actually wear us out as well and can actually become an obstacle to the intimacy that we seek. And one day we wake up and we think, oh, I'm so busy doing all this for God, but I've lost my relationship with God. And that is a shocking, shocking moment when a Christian leader gets to that moment or someone who's been a Christian for a long time and remembers intimacy 20 years ago uh, or 10 years ago, but hasn't been intimate with God for a long time. It's been a long time since they've heard a word from the Lord. It's been a long time since they've had an encounter that was uh, satisfying in any way. Um, since they've heard a personal word from God through scripture, since they've said anything honest to God and they realize, wow, I'm very busy in God's service, but the relationship itself has really um, gone away in some ways. The intimacy is just not there. And so that desire can be stirred then, the desire for intimacy again. And I would even say, I go so far as to say that desire, we can allow it to deepen into desperation and the desperation is a really good place for a Christian to be. And it sounds really funny because, you know, there's all this victorious kind of talk that we have. But when one of us gets desperate enough for the presence of God again, that we're willing to change our lives, that we're willing to seek no matter what the cost, that is a really good place to get to. Hmm. You talk about uh, the emptiness, the disconnection. I've known some leaders who are just not that interested in making a change. Um, Mm -hmm. or who say, Hey, this is just an occupational hazard. Well, Mm -hmm. what would you say to those leaders who say, no, Ruth, this is normal. Mm -hmm. Well, when I'm being nice, you want to tell me, you can (laughs) be both ways. Okay. Um, first of all, I don't think they're always being honest, honestly, Uh. um, 
about what it's really like on the inside, or they are so busy and distracted that it's been a long time since they've paid attention to what their soul really wants to say to God and to what's really true on the inside. Or they're still too early in the process where the pain of that emptiness has not overtaken them yet. But if we continue on a path that's not sustainable, we will get there. And so, you know, it's not my job to push anybody to a place of that kind of self-awareness. My job is to tell the truth about my own life and then um, to seek God with all my heart. And I've tried to put a few things down in print and for it to be there when someone hits that place where they realize I am empty on the inside, no matter how much success I'm experiencing um, in my external world, in my internal world, I'm not, I'm not experiencing the presence of God in a way that satisfies anymore. You know, I, I, I was on a coaching call uh, this morning with a leader who actually, as a pastor of a very large, successful church, said he had found himself growing empty and not like, you know, there's no scandal, there's no offense or anything, but he ended up recommitting his life to Christ and telling his church about that. And I was sharing my own, like my burnout's 13 years in the past now, but I found myself at the end of 2017 thinking that my, like I've read through the Bible every year for 20 years, pretty much nonstop, Mm -hmm. but it was starting to feel like a checklist. You know, you get yes. on those streaks on you version. And so last year I slowed down and mm-hmm. I said, God, I need to find you again. I need to not just read about you. I need to know you. And so I actually cut down to a couple of verses of the Psalms every day with a bit of Tim Keller and Kathy Keller. Mm-hmm. And that was it for six months, just a few verses of yeah. scripture and some space. And then I added some New Testament reading in once mm-hmm. July hit and now I'm back onto the 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 one year Bible, but it feels fresh and alive and like intimate again. Yeah. I guess from time to time you need those resets, even if you're moderately healthy, right? Yes, absolutely. And you know, there's a, there's a courage sometimes to to change it up a bit, like what you did, to say this is getting rote, it's getting routine. Um, I'm, I want to change it up, and even things that are as worthy as you know, reading the Bible through in a year, sometimes you still need to change it up like you did and even, even change how we approach it too. So in one of my books, I write about the practice of say of Lexio Divina, which is a much slower reading of scripture because many of us who have been raised in Protestant Christianity have done the reading through the Bible in a year or three years. And all we're really trying to do is check the box. We're not hearing anything from God, but it feels really good to check the box. And I remember those days in my own life as a young 30-year-old where, you know, I was reading through the Bible with this reading plan. And I think it was a three-year, but if you wanted to, you know, really be a star student, you would do it in a year. And I never remembered anything I read, but I loved it, the sensation of checking off the box because I'm a, I'm a person who likes to perform and achieve. And it felt really good to check off the box. And so we have to watch for that. And when we know that that's, that's where we're at, we need to change it up. It was weird because as I struggled with this and it took a little while, like I had experimented with more of a, a liturgical prayer calendar for a while and that helped for at the beginning. But then I was like, oh, this isn't really me. And, but there was a voice in my head that said, you're being unfaithful by not reading, you know, five passages of scripture every day and, and not reading the Bible this year. And then I thought, I don't know whether that's the voice of God. And in the end, yeah. <laughs> that does not sound like something God would say. <laughs> no, it doesn't sound like something God, but there is something in you, you know, the achiever that says it's all about achievement. Okay. Now we're on a podcast. All right. So yeah. I'm, I'm going to assume that this also describes the world of a lot of people listening. You also talk about Andrew Sullivan, who wrote mm-hmm. a book or wrote an article called I Used to Be a Human Being. 
And mm-hmm. it sounds like he probably, uh, you know, worked for Mashable or something like that in the early days yeah. where he was blogging multiple times a day and on his social yeah. media feed. And we all, to one extent or another, live a digital life. Frankly, it's if you're true. listening to this yeah. podcast, you you have one or maybe mm-hmm. both feet firmly in the digital world. And mm-hmm. he wrote about his addiction to, to tech and any and and he said, you know, I'm not even a human anymore. And he had to go into a radical detox. Mm-hmm. What yeah. are your thoughts on what constant connection is doing to our souls? Yeah. Well, for one thing, it's keeping us stimulated all the time, um, so that there's no time to quiet down and hear the still small voice of God or the voice of our own soul trying to say something to God, yeah. um, because. The, the, the way that technology is functioning in our lives right now, it's keeping us all riled up, all stirred up and, and reactive and responsive to what's going on in the outer world and disconnected from what's going on in our inner life. Okay. Can you, can you say that again? That, that was a big drop. I want, I want you to just say that again, because it's, it's keeping us what connected? Distracted. Oh yeah. Distracted um, with the outer yes, world. With the world rather than being in touch with what's happening in the inner world where our soul has something true to say to God and where God is longing to say something true to our souls. Someone has said, you. you'd be surprised what your soul wants to say to God. Wow. You would. But when you're as busy as we are, your soul never gets a chance to talk and you never hear it. Um, the soul doesn't compete. The soul is not going to shout and yell above all the other distractions we're allowing into our lives. And so it's a very serious matter to become disconnected from one's soul and to stop hearing what your soul wants to say to God and creating space for God to speak back to your soul. Okay, I want to come back to that. Is there anything else on on Andrew Sullivan and and like the the constant tech thing that oh, it's well, doing? Oh, I can keep going. I can definitely keep going on that. Keep going, and then I want to come back to what your soul wants to say. But keep going. One of the things that I think is so powerful about Andrew's story is that he talks about this. Uh, detox experience of going into a long silent retreat and um, all of his fidginess and his distractions, how hard it was to settle down. But then when he does settle down, he confronts his grief, his grief about family of origin and mm-hmm. um, childhood grief. And he is doubled over in tears and in pain because being distracted, I think one of the, the reasons we actually do distract ourselves from technology is so that we don't have to pay attention to the unresolved pain within us. And God never gets access to that place and we never really get healed because all we're doing is stuffing it down and repressing it. It's a very powerful description. And he had a wise spiritual director speaking of, you know, there was someone there who was available to people and his spiritual director was very wise just to tell him to stay with it. And he did. And eventually he touched something deeper and truer within himself. And um, that's the way grief and pain works. There's no way to get through it except to go through it. And solitude and silence provides us a chance. Retreat provides us with a chance to get through our grief rather than to suppress it and repress it. Was there a part of you when this journey started that was afraid to go there? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I remember getting ready to go on my first extended retreat. Um, and and I was going to Washington, D.C. To, to take this retreat with a particular group of people guiding me. And I was a young mom at the time, so I just want to say that. People think that I write about solitude and silence now when I don't have any kids in the house. No, 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 no. My (laughs) invitation to retreat and to solitude came when I was the mother of a seven-year-old, a five-year-old, and a newborn. Okay. So I don't want anyone to dismiss me because they think that I don't understand, because I do. 
And I want to say to God, are you kidding me? Couldn't this invitation have come at a better time? This is really not a good time for this invitation to come. But it was the invitation and God was inviting me into solitude and silence. And I remember beginning with shorter periods of solitude and silence, but then, you know, feeling very drawn to a longer retreat period. And it required a plane trip. And I checked my bags and I made all the arrangements for my kids and all that sort of thing. And then as I'm sitting there at the gate waiting, I am ambushed by fear, just ambushed by fears. And I pulled my journal out because I thought I've got to do something to keep myself from running out of here. Because if my bags hadn't been checked, I probably would have. <laughs> if it was carry on, you were gone. I had already checked yeah. my bags and I really didn't have any choice. So I began just writing out my fears. And, you know, there was fears of being bored, you know, because I'm used to being really busy. Like, am I going to be bored? Um, am I going to have trouble sleeping? Am I going to like the food? Um, is anything going to happen? Is God going to meet me or is God going to meet me and show me things about myself that I don't want to see? All sorts of fear just ambushed me. So I think we all have fear. And when I lead retreats now, I always guide people through an experience of paying attention to what they're experiencing on the inside. I invite them to pay attention to their anxieties and concerns, to write those down on a slip of paper, um, to let it all just come without fighting it. Um, Then on the other side, I invite them to reflect on their fears for themselves, the fears I just mentioned. Um, you know, will God meet me? Will he not meet me? What will that mean about him? What will it mean about me if he doesn't? Um, the fears of being bored, of not being cared for, of not resting. I mean, all sorts of fears. Put those fears on the other side and actually tuck that piece of paper into an envelope marked trust. And if there's an altar around, which we always have an altar when we're on retreat to gather around for our prayers, we invite people to literally put the envelope on the altar as a way of saying, I'm trusting God with my cares and concerns and I'm trusting God with myself while I'm here doing what God is inviting me to do. And that is beyond retreat and retreat, by the way, Jesus invites his disciples to retreat when he says, come away with me and rest a while. So I want to be really, really clear that when we hear this invitation to retreat and say yes to it, we do so as Jesus disciples. I like, I I'm, I'm one of Jesus disciples. Jesus invites his disciples to come away with me and rest a while. And when I refuse I'm actually refusing Jesus' invitation to me. I would say that to some of the pastors that you mentioned before. Really? You're going to tell me that you don't need retreat when Jesus said to his 12 disciples, come away with me and rest a while? When Jesus himself retreated, you're going to tell me you don't need this? (laughs) You know, because it's there. That exercise of writing down your fears Mm -hmm. in your journal. So that's interesting. Or on a piece of paper that you actually put in an envelope and set somewhere. You know, that's that's a sacred way of saying, I'm trusting myself to you, God. I am not sure that 99% of people listening to this have ever done that. Now, I've heard you talk about that. I've also, Tim Ferriss, I listened to the Tim Ferriss show. So mm-hmm. different use of language on that show than we yeah. would have on this one. But some really mm-hmm. interesting ideas. And he calls it fear setting, where mm-hmm. basically you write down like, what is the worst thing that could happen, mm-hmm. right? And all of yeah. a sudden, your fears are so irrational And they control your emotions. And when you write them down, he says, almost like we do goal setting, but he said you do fear setting. You write it all down. He says they have a way of losing their power. What what are your thoughts on that? I agree because I think many times our fears are held at an unconscious level. And so then they, they have power over you precisely because they are unconscious. Whereas when you bring them to consciousness and then even move them beyond your consciousness to writing them down outside yourself then first of all, they get right-sized, right? Um, You can see that it's ridiculous or irrational or whatever, and that's a good thing. And then in our case, in a Christian environment, what I'm guiding people to do is to take it one step further and not just acknowledge, but to actually 
trust it to God and to let God hold it. And that's, that's an expression of faith right there, which is what the journey is about. Do we trust God with our cares and concerns? Do I trust God that if I'm being invited to retreat and I say yes and I go, that God loves my children, that God loves my husband, that God cares about my work, that the conflicts that are left unresolved or the money issues that I'm wrestling with, do I trust that God can care for those things while I'm away doing what he's inviting me to do? Um, the battle is the Lord's, the psalmist says. Do I trust that the battles of my life are God's and that if I leave, God's still there taking care of it? I think that the invitation to retreat takes us up to the edge of our faith. Do I trust that God can care for the things that concern me while I'm away? And then beyond that, do I trust that God has good things in store for me? Can I trust myself to God? It's an interesting observation. I've, I've often wondered, you know, is constant busyness, the lack of stillness in your life, or even constant activity or connectivity, is that actually at some level a lack of trust? What would you say about that? Yes. Um, something as superficial as FOMO, fear of missing out. Right. I mean, if you're going to disconnect, you're going to have to trust that you're not going to miss out on something that you weren't supposed to be a part of anyway, or you have to trust your friends not to get together without you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. um, you have to trust that nobody's going to fire you while, while you're away on retreat. I mean, you, you, have to, right. you have to trust a little bit that fear of missing out. Um, and yes, and then beyond that, you are trusting yourself to God in a much more radical way than when you are all busy trying to keep your own life together. Um, we're now on, you know, in, in retreat environment, we're trusting God to order our lives and to do the good things in our lives that we don't even know to do for ourselves. You've also done some work on fatigue, tiredness. Mm -hmm. And yes. most people, I mean, the articles over the last decade are, are pretty unanimous in one direction. We're an underslept mm -hmm. culture. We're an exhausted culture. We're an yeah. exhausted people. Right. You make a distinction between good tired and dangerously tired. Can you talk yeah. to us about our fatigue? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, when we talk about dangerously tired and good tired, I like to draw people's attention to the dynamic and the atmosphere of normal, the, the, the development of normal rain clouds and rain versus yeah. the atmospheric conditions of a tornado. When there's a when there's a tornado on the way, it's dangerous and you have to get to your basement and there's a siren that goes off and the sky is green. and It gets eerily quiet. And, you know, I'm in danger then I have to do something different um, and dangerously tired in our lives is like that where we have gotten to the edge of something where if we do not pay attention, bad things are going to happen. Right. And um, so I, I really help people to, to think about dangerous levels of exhaustion in really concrete ways that, um, you know, when, when, our, when we're compulsive in our work, when we can't stop, when we can't disconnect, um, when we're restless and bored, when we um, distract ourselves through busyness and through... Um, the kinds of activities that really aren't good for us, like escapism. So whether it's shopping or spending or overeating or pornography or fantasy novels, whatever it is that that causes a person to to choose escape rather than choosing life-giving activity, that is a symptom of being dangerously tired. Um, when we understand that our spiritual practices are good for us, but we can't show up for them, we just you know don't think that we can face them. We just want to sleep. Um, wanting to escape our lives somehow and have a fundamentally different life. So daydreaming and escapist fantasy, things like that. Um, all of those kinds of things are indicators that we are edging towards being dangerously tired and probably towards a burnout situation. Very dangerous. And so in, in both of my books, both in um, Solitude and Silence and also in Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership, I actually give people real assessments 
that they can take so that they can determine whether or not they're teetering on the brink of dangerous levels of exhaustion. Good tired is normal. Um, it's right. normal for us to live in our sacred rhythms and to be refreshed and replenished enough to get out there, do what's ours to do, give it our best, leave it all on the field. But because we have rhythms in our lives, we come back to a place of Sabbath keeping. We come back to a vacation. We come back to good nights of sleep. Um, and we replenish ourselves like God replenishes and then we're back at it. That's a healthy rhythm right there. Uh, dangerously tired accumulates over time in very subtle ways. And it usually is a result of many things, including not having sacred rhythms in our lives, including repressed and suppressed emotion, things that we haven't dealt with and using our energy to suppress what's real in our lives. Um, and those, those are slow leaks, you know, and that kind of thing accumulates over time. Are those assessments or one of those assessments, are they available online anywhere that we could link to in the show notes? Um, yes. Um, if you go to the homepage of the Transforming Center, which is my organization, yeah. there's a place right there on the homepage to take the assessment. Awesome. We will link to that in the show notes. And it's also in the back of the book in, in cool. printed forms, uh, Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Uh, now, I don't know that these are the right categories. You can use whatever words you want, but there are themes that you keep coming back to, like mm -hmm. Sabbath, rest, retreat, mm -hmm. all these things that don't seem to fit into North American or Western life particularly mm -hmm. well these days. Um, and busy people would say, Ruth, I don't have the time for that. Like, thank you very mm -hmm. politely, but no, I haven't got the time for that. Tell us why these are so foundational and crucial. Well, before I do that, I want to say that that the very statements that you were making where we say, I don't have time for that, the culture doesn't allow it. That is a place, I think, of cultural conformity for Christians. It's a place where Christians are conforming to the culture rather than being a transforming presence in the world. And I believe that one of the most countercultural things we could do is to get this right, is to establish rhythms that keep us healthy and whole rather than continuing to conform to life in our culture. We have got, Boy. as Christians, it, we've got to drive some stakes in the ground and not let the culture tell us what's normal. And not even the Christian subculture. But, you know, there's a, <laughs> a Christian subculture, too, that is very performance-oriented, very performance-driven. And we can't let that culture tell us either, because the biblical culture, Jesus' message to us, and God's example to us, even in the Old Testament, is that God worked six days and rested on the seventh. Do you think God needed yeah. the rest? I'm not sure, but what I do know is that he did rest and he did feel like that was the sacred rhythm for him, her, if you will. Yeah. Um, so God, God, out of who God is, worked within rhythms of work and rest. And people want to call Sabbath keeping a Sabbath or a, a, a Jewish practice. It's not. Sabbath keeping is rooted in the person of God, God choosing to work six days and rest on the seventh. And then when God chose a people for himself and cultivated a people for himself, he taught them about the Sabbath and it became a hallmark of their identity. But it doesn't originate with the Jewish people. It originates with God and how God chose to do God's creative life in creation. So when we are practicing Sabbath rhythms of work and rest, we're God-like in that way. Um, when we say yes to the invitation to come away with me and rest a while, we are being Jesus' disciples and doing what Jesus asked his early disciples to do and what he wants to teach us how to do. Um, this is a place where we can actually take back our cultural conformity and do something that actually confronts what's taking place in the culture right now. And of course, it's, I think it's going to be one of the hardest things we do. Because with the onslaught of technology and its ubiquitous nature, it's radical 
to disconnect from technology and the stimulation that comes through technology. It's going to be very radical for any of us to make choices around that. Can you give us some models or ideas for Sabbath? I had, and we'll link to it in the show notes, but I asked Eugene Peterson this question um, when he was on the podcast. And I mean, he had a really simple routine where he and his wife, Jan, would just go hiking and they'd be Mm -hmm. silent in the morning. They'd pack a lunch. And then on the way back, they would talk about what they saw. It was a pretty Mm -hmm. simple, wonderful routine, but what a rich life. John Tyson, who was on last year on the podcast, talked about his rhythm for Sabbath and some of the other guests have as well. So we'll link to those in the show notes, but I would love for you to talk to us about what you think constitutes, what are some, some reasonable practices for Sabbath? Yeah. Well, I write about my own journey with Sabbath in the book, Sacred Rhythms, um, because it was, it's really been almost the last holdout for me. Um, and it was in my early forties after I had, you know, been practicing other disciplines for a long time. And I just thought Sabbath was too hard. I had put it in the too hard file. Um, my husband is a banker and his bank was open on Sundays. Right. My children were all athletes. And so they were all in sports on Sundays. I was in ministry. And so Sunday was the busiest day for me. So I, it was, it was just a can of worms. I just didn't want to open. And so I just sort of left it outside of my awareness in the too hard file. At the same time though, as I was recognizing these dangerous levels of depletion, my longing for Sabbath was growing. And in fact, when I would read books like Wayne Mueller's book, Sabbath, I would literally weep at the practices that he would describe that were so gentle and so restful and gave us ways to practice trusting God and gave us ways to practice savoring God's good gifts in our lives and creating space for the soul to come out and to say true things and to sit with your family in a loving way without everybody having to rush off somewhere. Um, So I read the readings and I would weep with longing for it, but I just didn't think it was realistic in my life. And so then when I was no longer on a church staff, I thought, oh, great. Now we can go to a church. We can just be a normal family. We can go home and have dinner together. But this church that we were attending at the time, they did everything on Sundays. They put all their activities into Sundays. So the youth groups, junior high, high school, congregational meetings, small group meetings, choir practices, you know, um, small group Bible studies, all of it happened on Sundays. I think they were afraid they wouldn't get people to come back, you know, if they Uh, didn't schedule everything on Sunday. So I understand it. But what it did was show me that it's not just the secular culture that prevents us from practicing Sabbath. The church culture does too, if we're not intentional, because Sabbath keeping is intended by God to be a communal discipline. It's not just my own private solitude. Um, It takes place within the community of people that I'm sharing faith with. Our life together has to make it possible for me to practice Sabbath. And it's not solitude because it takes place with your family. It takes place with the people that you're closest to. Now, I think it's lovely if we can build some solitude and silence in. But I mean, I started wrestling with these issues when I had, you know, children in the home. So it's not a time when I leave my family and go be in solitude. It's a time when I'm with my family, but in a different way. So it's a communal discipline. Let's not forget that. So my own journey, um, which was actually quite harrowing, was that I got run over by a car at one point. I'd been riding my bike and I got run over by this van, van that was powered by being driven by an older man who whose reflexes were not so great. And it was after that, when I just got right up and right up off that pavement almost and went back to work that I had a friend say, you know, Ruth, you did just get hit by a car. You could take a day off. (laughs) (laughs) And she nailed me. She just absolutely nailed me um, because I didn't even stop after that traumatic experience to let my body and my soul heal. Um, And I realized, man, I've been on this treadmill for a very long time. And it was during that time that God brought some of Wayne Mueller's readings back to me. And I thought, 
I think God's bringing this to me. I think God is using this accident for his purposes. I don't think he caused it, but I think he's using this for his purposes and he wants me to face the issue of Sabbath in my life. And so it's a, it's a significant part of my spiritual journey, how God um, brought me to a place that I could take Sabbath keeping out of the too hard file and actually incorporate it into my life as a person with children and a husband, you know, whose work required him to be at work. Sometimes that has since changed. Thanks be to God. Um, and really confronting what it is in the church culture that keeps us from practicing this together and supporting one another. So I understand now Sabbath to be all about um, rest, worship, and delight. Those are the three things that Sabbath is supposed to be about. So those are the things that we embrace and incorporate on Sabbath. Rest, are, worship, and delight. And delight, yes. So can mm-hmm. you can you break that down a little bit more? And, you know, I, I got to just uh, underline what you said about Sabbath being communal. I mean, mm-hmm. in my lifetime, at least in Canada anyway, I don't know whether it's the same in the U.S., like I still remember where you had to gas up on Saturday because mm-hmm. the gas stations would be closed on Sunday and you might find that one that was open mm-hmm. and you're not buying milk unless it's like, you know, $10 exactly. a gallon at that one store mm-hmm. that's open. Uh, but right. that has all been blown to smithereens in our lifetime. Yes. And now now the Sundays are seen as being a time for consuming. So consumerism yeah. is alive and well. Um, it's time for sports. It's a time for catching up on everything you didn't get done during the week, all your human things. So here's another thing about Sabbath that I think is really important, that in the practice of Sabbath keeping the way we're offered it in Scripture, the seventh day is the day for rest. But that means that you have to really order the rest of your week so that you can have that seventh day. Right. So that means that the five days you try to you, you need to get your paid work done in five days and then you need that sixth day for the work of being human. Right. Like mow your lawn, washing the car, lawn, picking up the dry cleaning, uh, going shopping and all those things. So, so the sixth day becomes pivotal that you really do have a sixth day for the work of being human. So the seventh day can really be a day of rest. I think that's really important. And I think and it, that is, you would say the God ordained rhythm or the natural, the, the better rhythm of life. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, that's very God-like, by the way, that yes. corresponds to how God chose to do it. So I love the fact that we can actually participate in God's nature and in God's character by practicing Sabbath. I love to shut down on the night before in, in, you know, in ways that are consistent with the Jewish practice, because they would, it would be sundown of the night before where they would begin by lighting candles and having a special meal and blessing each other and things like that. So that you just begin to shut it all down. You work really hard during the day, but you get towards five o'clock and six o'clock at night and you're shutting it down. And that's the beginning. And so to start with restfulness, I think is really important because even gathering in community is in some ways, Effortful, you know, yes, especially if you're in ministry. Yes, and 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 even for introverts, for instance, to have to put your face on and get out there and interact with people, um, that's not restful. I'm an introvert, and so I have to get up for that. You know, I have to <laughs> shore up for that, and then I'm tired afterwards. So to begin with, resting is almost essential in my mind um, to actually engage worship and delight from any sort of a good place. Does that make sense as I say? Oh it? yeah, yeah. So let's let's walk through that. Okay, let's mm-hmm. walk through the three what you see as the three purposes of mm-hmm. Sabbath. Yeah, so um we rest our minds and our, our our bodies and our souls. So in let's see. Probably it's in the book Sacred Rhythms. I actually walk people through, you know, at the exercise of of thinking about what's restful for them at the physical level. So you get some extra sleep and you should. You should take naps. Sabbath should always include a nap. Always, yes. always, always. 
or laying on the couch under a blanket or laying in that recliner, but being comfortable and restful in your body is part of it. Taking bubble baths, wearing your, your comfortable clothes, eating beautiful food, you know, the best food on the Sabbath. So all of those things have to do with the rest for the body. Then rest for the mind. Um, we refrain from getting involved with things that tax us at the level of the mind. So we don't work on taxes, pardon the pun. We don't planning like wedding planning. I, I have three daughters and they all three, you know, had weddings. Well, I was practicing Sabbath by that point. And I said, no, we're not doing wedding planning on Sundays. I know that would be convenient for you, but I don't right. do that kind of thing on, on Sundays. Um, hard conversations, you know, with, with a spouse, get some rest first and then have those conversations on the way out of your Sabbath time. So that's consistent with what you described with Eugene Peterson. They're quiet in the mornings and then they hike and on the way, then they start to talk about things. But, you know, we're not at our best when we're exhausted and we don't bring our best to the conversations with our loved ones. And so do that after Sabbath, out of that resting, then do the hard conversations. But budgeting, you know, budgeting conversations, those are stressful. These make me work hard at the level of my mind. Um, even the hard things that are going on, like sometimes when you're in the middle of a conflict, I have um, sometimes told myself on the Sabbath, I am going to set that conflict aside. I'm not going to work on that mentally today. It will still be there tomorrow. Today, I'm going to rest myself in God and I'm going to trust God to take care of that thing. So that's a way we rest the mind. Other than scripture, would you read a book? Would you? Yes. Yes. Um, and spiritual readings that are not your work. Like for me, there's a fine line there. You can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Pleasure reading, I guess. Pleasure I would say. reading or, yeah. or things that God is using for you to connect you with your own soul at the soul level. Cause right. I think that that's an important part of Sabbath too, is to connect with soul again, to connect with what's most essential in you, that place where God is present to you. Um, poetry is a, a favorite practice of mine because I love, love, love words. And so I have to be careful because I'm a writer, represents my work, but reading poetry um, is, it, I put that in the category of delight. Like it's just utterly delightful to see what people do with words in poetry. So we, we choose those things that delight us rather than tax us and make us tired. And then worship, what does worship look like? Mm -hmm. Yes, and that's where I, I have two ways of looking at that. I, I actually love the idea of having worship on the night before. So I practice Sabbath on Sundays because it's the only day that it's even possible for me in our culture. Right. So churches that gather on a Saturday night and have their service at five Saturday and actually begin their, their Sabbath practice with worship together communally. And then after that, you have a nice meal, but then you wake up the next day and you stay in your jammies till noon. You know, you have that second cup of coffee, you know, um, you're not getting up and rushing to get dressed and rushing your kids into the car and all of that. I, there's something really delightful and really right about churches that gather on Saturday to begin the Sabbath with worship. And then the families can stay together and be together without stress all the way through the next day. Um, or we can reverse it a bit and say, if you begin shutting down and letting down on, on the night before, which would be Saturday for me, then you're somewhat rested then. You've already started your resting right. so that you come into worship on Sunday in a more rested way. You've let go of cares and concerns and you're open to the presence of God. Either way, you know, you want to find a way for all of this to be restful and not hard work. Now, when I'm on retreat with pastors and clergy, we have to really wrestle with Sabbath for the clergy. Yes. And, and I have ideas about that. And I do talk to people. Well, go ahead. There's a lot listening. So give us the overview. First of all, because Sabbath is a communal discipline, um, I think clergy need to live into their own desire 
for Sabbath and really get it at that level and realize that if they don't, they're going to suffer and they may even make it for the long haul. To claim it at that level is, is, is first and to begin trying to find a way to practice it. Then we can begin to guide our conversation, our, our congregations in these things and begin to order our lives around Sabbath. Um, I think the pastor needs to teach about Sabbath. It's a very biblical practice. It's not a Jewish practice. It's it's a biblical practice, in my humble opinion. Sabbath was so significant that Jesus didn't teach on it because he was assuming that people were practicing Sabbath because he was a practicing Jew. You know, right. so he and his disciples practiced the Sabbath. They didn't need to talk about it. They practiced it. You know, there's so much biblical basis for it. And then Jesus was just a practicer of the Sabbath. So biblical teaching. And then if there's changes that need to be made. So one suggestion I make is that the only thing you do on Sundays is worship. You don't throw in committee meetings and youth group meetings and right. uh, you don't bring people back. After Sunday morning, everybody goes home and gets back in their jog pants and eats good foods and take naps and have sex and, you know, with your spouse. Yeah. Um, Sabbath sex is really a great practice that, you know, the, the Jewish, it comes right out of the Jewish tradition. It's how they applied it. Um, you got to love a religion like that, right? Yeah. And you do things that are delightful. Maybe you watch movies. Maybe you go for long, leisurely walks. Maybe you read a novel or you read poetry. Like I mentioned, you lay under a blanket, you light a fire, you sit in the sun on your own patio. You linger with the people that you love rather than having to get up and jump and run. Um, you, if, if you love to run, you get out and take a good run. If you want to, if, if you like um, football or, or sports and that being competitive is just good for you, you know, then you have a pickup football game or a pickup basketball game or something like that. But you do it for delight. You don't do it for accomplishment or achievement. Do you know what yeah. I'm saying? So you pick, you choose, and then the rest of the day just unfolds. And, you know, people always ask, oh, so let me finish with pastors. So what I would say is you have worship, but by 12 or one, everybody, including staff is heading home. Nobody comes back. Everybody is now Sabbathing together because pulling off church services cannot in any way be considered a rest. It is work for the people who pull it off. Then I would suggest that they're starting their Sabbath at one and then they go through one the next day and you just make sure your phones are manned. Um, but all the staff Sabbaths until at least one on the Monday um, or maybe the whole Monday is taken off, depending on how much output you do um, on Sundays. But that, that, that you you give this to the staff and then you begin to also think about how many services you have and how much you're requiring of volunteers and how are we helping our volunteers to practice the Sabbath. Those are hard and challenging conversations yeah. because many churches really do require a lot of volunteers to carry off all that they oh, do. Yeah. Crazy. And so how are you going to teach your volunteers about Sabbath? And are you going to talk about Sabbath when it comes time to adding another church service? Does anybody raise the question, well, how does this help our people practice Sabbath? Will this prevent us from practicing Sabbath? You have this as a part of the conversation all the time. And I'm telling you, when I uh, facilitate a conversation around this, is it is lively, as you can imagine, because it just confronts us and how we're even doing our, our Christian church life in a very busy way. You know, it's interesting because what you describe as a rhythm for a pastor on Sunday describes mm -hmm. how I have spent my Sundays for 23 years. Like mm -hmm. when I was a lead pastor, no mm -hmm. meetings on Sunday. Nobody comes back with me. I'm not doubling yeah. up because I'm in town. It's yeah. like you go back, you hang out with your wife, your kids, yeah. you do something fun, you relax. And I, I guess I grew up in a somewhat Calvinist home. So, I mean, we weren't mm -hmm. allowed to do anything on Sunday. And I've kept that, right. like, you know, Sunday's not a day for cutting the grass. It's not a day for detailing the it's cars. Not for, or, for scheduling, or for scheduling meetings, just because no. you think it's the best time to get people back to the building. Absolutely. Empty, no, but I think we should come in. 
No, I think that's interesting. Wow, I, I th- that is a good deep dive into that, and and I think I think that's a good guide because people can get into legalism, right? So I enjoy biking; it's my yes. only form of exercise. I love so a Sunday mm-hmm. afternoon ride on a sunny day. That that do you yeah. use restorative as a guideline, like what restores you or what? Yes. Yes. Yeah. What do you find replenishing? Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. And delightful because I believe that delight is a very replenishing thing to experience, right? Yeah. When you have delighted in something like you've delighted in your children or you've delighted in that bike ride on, on the sunny day, delight is a very replenishing kind of an experience, I think. So I'll just sneak this in. Smoke a brisket, people. That's what you need to mm-hmm. do. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yes. Let it teach you everything you need to know. Yeah, that, that's it. That's it. Um, wow. Okay. So we never quite got to talk to you, like, what does your soul want to say to God? But is it in those moments that you really begin to hear the core of your yes, being say something? Exactly. So if there is any way for you to have some time for some silent listening and journaling, some people will do an examen on the Sabbath. You know, there's that you can do a daily examen, but some people can't really find time for that in a daily way. So on the Sabbath, when time is a little bit more spacious, they'll do an examine, which is simply to look back on your week and to ask God to show you where God was present with you and you responded and you sensed his presence to thank God for his presence with you, to invite God to reveal places where he might have been inviting you, but you ignored him and to, to maybe even confess sin if there were places where God was at work and you refused to respond, you know, to, to, to really allow a sense of fullness about the fact that God has been with you in ways that were actually very surprising and to let prayers and, you know, develop out of that place and to thank God for God's presence with you or other kinds of journaling too. Maybe the, maybe the scripture that was used in the sermon really sparked you and you're like, man, I got to get with my journal and I got to listen to God some more about that scripture because that was, that really penetrated my heart. But what is God saying to me and get that, you know, get that down in a journal entry. I find that when I get into a deeply restful place, poetry does come out of me. Wow. There's always in my books, there will always be, one original poem. Um, and it always comes out of these deeply restful times. You know, Wendell Berry had his whole series on Sabbath poems because he, you know, poems just came out of him on the Sabbath because we get to that place where we're touching the soul. And so, you know, you're helping us to, you know, to finish the trilogy of resting body, mind, and soul. What's restful for the soul? What's restful for the soul is just to be with God with what is, to finally have some time and space to be with God with what is, whatever it is, to be with God with it even if it's painful. Yeah, I was going to say, and even if you're in a season where you're working through something tough, like a relationship that's failed or a past pain. If you're present to the difficulty of it, you're present to what your soul is saying about it. You're present to your own deep truth and to the truth of God spoken to you. You're present to your life um, on the Sabbath and there's room for your soul on the Sabbath. So um, if you're, if you're, you know, hitting on all those cylinders, you're practicing Sabbath, you know, in 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 a deeply replenishing way. Well, Ruth, we're at the end of our time together today, but I want you to speak to the mom or the dad who's got five soccer practices this mm-hmm. week, 17 meetings and yeah. uh, to-do list that never gets depleted. Who's yeah. like, thanks for the theory. Where do mm-hmm. I even start? Yeah. What would you say? Well, that is such a beautiful question. And um, I, I want to say again that all of these invitations came to me when I was in that life stage and I had to figure yeah. it out there first. And the first thing we do is pay attention to our desire. And I know that sounds funny, but you got to let yourself want it. You have to let yourself want it badly to rearrange your life. 
go all the way down to the bottom of your desire and trust God to meet you there. I think many of us are afraid to say, oh, what she's talking about, I want that. I want that so badly. So go to that place of desire and then let, let God meet you in that place. And out of that place of desire, not oughts or shoulds or legalisms or anything else, but because you want it really badly and you have a sense that God's inviting you to it, then say, God, what are we going to do about that? How are we, how am I going to get to rearrange my life for this? And then you, you allow yourself to be guided. So some ways that we've been guided in our own lives, you, 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 you say yes and no to these committee meetings and these committees. And you, you decide, can I afford to add that into my life? Will I still be able to have the life I'm longing for in God with my family? You say your yeses and your noes based on your deepest desire. What do I want more? Do I want to be on this committee or do I want to be home with my kids for dinner? You know, um, do I want to do that or do I want to be at my kids games? Um, I will say we had three athletes and they were all three sport athletes. Um, and at one point when our one daughter was really emerging as a soccer player, um, she ended up really having quite a soccer career through college. She decided that she wanted to play in a uh, a league that played on Sundays, we said, you know, we're, we're going to let you make that choice because you're, uh, you know, a young adult already. You can make that choice, but we're not going to be packing soccer bags and, and grabbing chairs and water bottles and going and sitting on soccer sidelines on Sundays. So she found rides. She did it different ways, different times. It was her choice. And she learned from her choices too. So she has a real perspective herself now on the fact that she really needed one day a week not to be an athlete and not to be competing and not to be pushing herself so hard. So she learned that by her own opportunity to, to, to learn and to try. So, um, you go down to desire, you say your yeses and your noes based on what you really long for in your life. I think parents have to be really brave and not let their kids' lives drive them. That's a crazy thing we've gotten into in our culture where now all of our aspirations for our kids to be high level athletes, you know, people <laughs> have three-year-olds and they're enrolling them in all their sports and letting sports drive their adult life. I don't think yeah. we can do that. Like we cannot afford to do that. Um, we want to do enough so that our kids have opportunities, but we can't let their, you know, their desire to, to be involved in everything or our aspirations for them to be Olympic athletes drive every choice we make and hijack our whole lives. <laughs> I think we need to get together, talk about this stuff and be radical with it. You know, what's fascinating is I was talking to my son who just turned 23 and uh, he used to play fairly high level hockey and, you mm -hmm. know, it was a couple nights a week and, you know, all over the province, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I asked him, you know, now that he's in his early 20s, so how many of your friends who went on to go even to that next level actually yeah. made it to pro? He's mm -hmm. like, nobody. Mm -hmm. We all sacrificed ourselves for it and look what we got, you know? Yeah. And I'm not saying that's bad. Like that was a good childhood and the kids yeah. really enjoyed it and team sports is good. But like, I think sometimes as parents, we're just convinced that, you know, we've got the most talented and gifted kids in the world. And they're, you know, they're all special. Your mom thinks you're special. That's good. My mom thinks I'm special, but, but uh, we sometimes kill ourselves in the process, which isn't always well, and healthy. A fine, a fine nuance in what you just said is team sports are great. They, yeah, are, they great are for kids. And I don't know where we would have been with our kids and what would have happened to them if they hadn't had the opportunity to be in team sports and it made them better people. There's a difference though, between playing team sports and the kind of competitiveness that has parents running around like crazy and spending their whole life on. And fighting each other in the parking lot, which we yes, saw once yes. or twice. Cause I don't want to in any way diminish athletics because no. I, you know, I have daughters. And so I think that their relationship to their bodies is better because they were athletes it's given them a relationship beyond sexuality with their bodies that they're seen for something else. They know they can be strong in their bodies. They know they can be strong mentally. They know they can compete. They can be a part of a team. I mean, there's so many benefits 
But it's this competitiveness that we've allowed ourselves to get into that has started to drive the family's life and drive our schedules in such a way that we don't have any downtime with each other and with God. So anyway, I could go on and on about that. Well, we could, but I know people are going to want to do a deep yes. dive. So I will yeah. link to some resources I produced on the other side of burnout called the High Impact okay. Leader, but people are going mm-hmm. to want to find you and your resource as well. So where where's the easiest place for them to go if they want more? I would say, um, you know, you can order any book on amazon.com. That's a great way to get yeah. uh, books these days. But we also have an online store in the Transforming Center where everything is available and the books that go out from our online store are all signed by me. So if you're somebody who likes to have a signed book, I know I really treasure my own books that have been signed by the author. So if you order from us, it'll be signed and it'll come to you immediately. It'll go in the mail the next day that after you make your order. So it's pretty quick and you'll have a signed book on the other side of it. The website is? www.transformingcenter.org. Perfect. Well, Ruth Haley Barton, thank you so, so much. We'll link to all that in the show notes with transcripts and everything. Uh, super helpful, very challenging, and very refreshing. Oh, I hope so. Uh, thank you so much for a good conversation. Well, I'm hoping that really spoke to your soul. And if you want more, you can head on over to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 260, 260. You will find transcripts there. You'll find the show notes there. You can also just uh, Google Ruth's name, Ruth Haley Barton, and my name, and you'll find it. Or uh, head on over to leadlikeneverbefore.com and just search Ruth Haley Barton in the search bar and uh, everything you are looking for will show up. Hey, subscribers, you're not going to want to miss. And by the way, subscribing's free. So if you haven't done it, just whatever you're listening to this on, hit subscribe because next week is killer. Michael Hyatt is here. And uh, <laughs> when I was finished my conversation with Michael Hyatt, I just thought, I think this is like more leadership per minute. Than, than any other guest I've ever had on the podcast. It is like calorie dense in brilliant ideas. And he talks about how to focus in a distracted world. He's got a brand new book called Free to Focus. Uh, plus we talk about some other things like succession in leadership and uh, what his challenges are in leadership. It's a fascinating conversation. That'll be next Tuesday. And of course, if you subscribe for free, you're never gonna miss it. Uh, here's an excerpt from my conversation with Michael Hyatt. That, that could change your life more than anything, you know, is when you publish a book. But but just to give you an example, um, this is this is why last year, you know, the, the whole premise of this book is a total productivity system to achieve more by doing less. So last year, my business grew 62%. Now we're a wow. multi-million, eight-figure business. We grew 62%, which by any measure is huge growth. Yeah. But get this, Carrie, I took off 160 days last year year. No contact with the office. I didn't think about work. I didn't read about work. 160 days. That included weekends, but that was 11 weeks of vacation. So I took more time off than ever. And I grew my business. Our average business coaching client, which by the way, 10% of our coaching clients are pastors, but it's our, our business accelerator program. In the first 12 months, our average client grows their business by 67% while shaving 11 hours off their work week which is exactly the promise of this book and what we're after. Fascinating, guys. I think you're going to love it. And uh, we're back next Tuesday with more. So thank you so much for listening. Uh, Whatever you are doing right now, whether you are cooking, cleaning, uh, maybe getting your yard ready for spring, working in the garden, on a ride, on a run, thanks for listening. You guys mean the world to me. Thanks for making this such a rewarding journey. Uh, We're back next Tuesday with more. 
And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.